Many of you have uh, begun your Christmas and Advent traditions. Uh, maybe you, you do special Advent devotionals, visit uh, various light displays. Perhaps you, you break out a few of the kind of ugly sweaters throughout Christmas. Perhaps if your uh, personality is just a bit more subdued, you'll just break out the, the green sweater. Um, or or perhaps, perhaps you go to kind of special Christmas concerts. Um, there are many things that we do uh, during, during this time of year. Um, perhaps, perhaps one of your traditions is to, to listen to uh, George Frederick Handel's Messiah. Uh, and uh, the, the well, most well-known piece uh, from, from that famous work is the, uh, the Hallelujah Chorus. And I'll, I'll spare you the privilege of hearing me sing Hallelujah, as I'm sure you know the tune. Um, sadly, or, or maybe not so sadly, um, Handel's Hallelujah Chorus overshadows um, the amazing opening words of the work. Uh, comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Uh, Handel, he actually took those words of comfort from the passage of Scripture that we're uh, studying together this morning. Isaiah chapters 40 through 48. And as I said, uh, those words, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. They're the, they're the opening words of Isaiah chapter 40. But really, uh, those words of comfort are the, the whole message of the nine chapters that follow. God's people are to be comforted because He will send a servant to rescue and redeem them from the mournful exile that lay before them. And if you're looking for a one-sentence summary for the nine chapters that we're studying together this morning, uh, then that's it. God's people are to be comforted because He will send a servant to rescue and redeem them from the mournful exile that lay before them. The, the Christmas and, and Advent season is meant to be a, a time of longing. Uh, and it should be a time of longing, I think, for comfort. Uh, life in this world is, is often weary. Uh, perhaps you felt some of that this past week. Uh, in this season, we're, we're often worn out. Um, the year has taken its toll. And for maybe many of us, the busiest days are actually still ahead. Um, if there's one thing that we need this morning, it is comfort. And so it's my prayer that as we study these nine chapters of Scripture together this morning, that we would all receive comfort from the God who keeps His promises to His people. Uh, if, if you haven't done so already, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles uh, to Isaiah chapter 40. If you're using one of the Bibles provided there in the pews, uh, you can find that on page 599. 599 of the Bibles provided. And just so you know, we're going to be flipping back and forth a lot through these chapters. So I'm going to refer to chapters and verses. The chapters, uh, if you're not used to looking at a Bible, they're the larger numbers there in the text. And the verses are the, the smaller uh, numbers there in the text. I hope that'll help you. Also, uh, help to you would be uh, an, an insert there in your bulletin kind of with an outline of this sermon. I hope that'll help you follow along as we look at these chapters. Um, so, where are we, really, in the book of Isaiah? T today, we, we begin to study what many scholars have identified as the second half of Isaiah. So, we've spent the past many weeks... Uh, studying the first half. Now we're looking at the second half of Isaiah. And as we move from chapter 39 to chapter 40, a shift in focus really takes place. Isaiah leaves behind the Assyrian crisis that took place in 701 BC, and he looks forward to what will become the Babylonian crisis 
uh, in the Assyrian crisis, the, the people of Judah have they've seen their neighbors to the north, the people of Israel, carried off into exile. That happened in 722 BC. And in chapter 39, Isaiah has told the people of Judah, that's who the book of Isaiah is written to mainly, he's told the people of Judah that the same thing will happen to them. Uh, no, only they're not going to be carried off in, in exile by Assyria. They'll be carried off to exile by Babylon. Uh, and this actually took place in history. This took place around 586, 587 BC. Um, and, and as a divinely inspired prophet of God, Isaiah, he looks into Judah's future and he tells them what's coming and he delivers God's message to them. And though the crisis of the second half of Isaiah is different, we're no longer looking at the Assyrian crisis, we're now looking at the Babylonian crisis, and though the crisis is different, the message that we find in the second half of Isaiah is the same as the message in the first half. God is your salvation. So trust in Him. Chapters 40 through 48 reveal this message through an, an intricate symphony of poetry and prose. And we're going to look at this poetic symphony first by hearing its, its melody. What's the, what's the main line that this, this section of God's Word sings? And then we're going to hear its astounding four-part harmony. So let's begin with the melody of Isaiah chapters 40 to 48. And as we do, let's read, let's open by, I'll read the first eight verses for us of Isaiah chapter 40. Here we read, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she is received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. At the end of Isaiah chapter 39, the people of Jerusalem and Judah were told of a day that was coming. They were told that a day was coming when all that was stored in the king's treasury would be carried off to Babylon. Uh, possessions, and worst of all, people, would be dragged off to exile. Those who were supposed to be kings in Judah would be humiliated before the kings of Babylon. Chapter 39 concluded with Hezekiah, glad that, you know, at least there's going to be peace in my time. But there would not be peace in the days ahead. On the heels of that dark promise, at the end of Isaiah chapter 39, come the, the calming, the comforting words, tender words here of Isaiah 40. And interestingly enough, um, comfort actually here in the original language, it's, it's actually commanded. Be comforted. Um, but what we must not lose sight of is that comfort is to be extended to and embraced by a people who belong to God. Here they're called 
my people. Even though the exile is coming and even though it is coming as a punishment for Israel and Judah's failure to trust in God, it does not, however, mean that they will cease to be a people nor cease to be God's people. If you are in Jesus Christ and you belong to Him by faith and take comfort from this, no matter what you go through, you will never cease to belong to God. And take comfort from this too. All of our warfare will come to an end. You see, Isaiah, he here looks into the future. He sees a day when the, the hardship, the warfare that is the exile itself is over. And he offers the comfort of pardon as her sins have been fully paid for. And I don't, I don't know about you, I don't think you ought to be uh, kind of tripped up or troubled by this reference to a uh, double payment of, of her sins. Let's remember that what we're reading here is prophetic poetry. Um, poets state things in kind of lavish, extravagant terms to, to make a point. And as one scholar says, double is not used here in the sense of kind of a mathematical proportion, but to emphasize just how fully she has been punished, though not more than she deserved. In addition to remembering that we're reading poetry, we must also remember that we are reading prophetic literature. And sometimes there are kind of multiple horizons of fulfillment. This word of comfort to the people of Judah would be fulfilled in the near term and in the distant future. God would act to bring comfort to those who were physically exiled from the land of Canaan. We'll think about that in a little bit when we think about Cyrus. Uh, Cyrus, he would uh, return the people of Judah to the land of Canaan. And through Cyrus, God would solve the problem of the physical exile from Canaan. And we must also say something else. God would also act to solve the problem which that physical exile symbolized. God would act to bring comfort to those who were exiled from His presence because of their sin. Both of these horizons the scriptures take seriously, and we should too. And this, if you, you may have noticed, uh, what, what this, the way in which it's spoken of, it's spoken of as a thing having already been accomplished, because the promise is so certain. With this comfort comes an announcement, make way for the Lord. The Lord is coming, His glory will be revealed in His coming, He will be seen by flesh. And let's be clear about who's coming. If you, you notice there in the first half of verse 3, we're told that Yahweh will come. That's what those, those capital letters L-O-R-D mean to communicate. They're capitalized. We're told then in the second half of verse 3 that the path needs to be made straight for our God. And really repetition, it's underscoring the point here. We are to expect God Himself to come. And God's coming, we are told at the end of verse 5, is certain. A double reassurance is then given at the end of verse 8. God's mouth has spoken and His word never fails. Every promise of God you can take to the bank. He keeps His promises. And the way in which these words have been fulfilled proves that God's word is sure. The, the gospel writers in the New Testament of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all quote from this section of Isaiah. They quote Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3. And, and they see in these words the fulfillment of the preparatory ministry of John the Baptist. Uh, John the Baptist, he came preaching in the wilderness. 
And it was His work to announce the coming of God in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ. Everything about John's ministry was calibrated around the eventual arrival of our Lord and God. John the Baptist, he preached about the kingdom of heaven because the king of the kingdom had arrived. He ministered in the wilderness, dressed like a prophet of old, and had, we'll call it a unique diet, of uh, locusts and honey, uh, all so that the prophecies would be fulfilled and the stage set for the arrival of God in the flesh in Jesus Christ. The ultimate comfort of the book of Isaiah finds its yes and amen in Jesus Christ, in the coming of God Himself in the flesh. It is in Jesus that God speaks to us a word of comfort. It is in Jesus that God tells us that our warfare with Him has ended. It is in Jesus that we are told that our iniquities, our transgressions, our sins have been forgiven and pardoned. And it is in Jesus that God's Word really does stand forever. Now, I've suggested to you that comfort and peace are the melody line of this whole section. Uh, but we've really only looked at the first part. So let's turn to the end. Let's turn to the last part of these chapters. Turn to Isaiah chapter 48. And I want us to look at the last verse. It's verse 22, page 609 of the Bibles provided. This is the last verse of this section. And just kind of a note. Um, chapter 39 ended with Hezekiah saying... Uh, there's going to be peace in our time. And take a look at what we see here. Isaiah 48, 22, we read, There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. Now here's a negative way of stating what we read at the beginning of chapter 40. God's people have His comfort because they have peace with Him, but the wicked, those who are not God's people, do not have God's comfort because they do not have peace with Him. This is how actually the next two sections of Isaiah will end. So if you want to know why I outlined uh, the last section of Isaiah as I did in three sermons, it's because it ends on this note of peace. So next week we'll study uh, Isaiah chapters 49 through 57, if the Lord tarries. Um, and, and do you know what the last verse of chapter 57 is and what it says? It says exactly what Isaiah 48, 22 says here. It says, there is no peace for the wicked. And then the book as a whole, Isaiah chapter 66, ends with a vision of the eternal suffering of the wicked. It ends with a visual description of no peace for the wicked. And as I mentioned a minute ago, this is a, a negative way of assuring the people of God that they have peace with Him. And therefore they should heed His commands to be comforted by Him. We have comfort stated positively and negatively uh, at the beginning and the end of, of this section of Isaiah uh, chapters 40 through 48. And this melody line can actually be heard throughout these chapters. So I'm going to go back to Isaiah chapter 40. You can go back there and look at verse 9. No less than eight times in these chapters do the are the people of God, they're told to be comforted by being told to fear not. It's going to be okay. Don't be afraid. So Isaiah chapter 40 verse 9. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength. See, we sang, go tell it on the mountain this morning. Here we are. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Comfort for God's people is found in Him. If you move ahead one chapter to Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10, we read, Fear not. For I am with you. 
Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And, and we, could, we could keep going with these fear not references. If we were to simply kind of step back and hear the poetic song that these chapters sing, I think that this is the melody line that we would hear. In these chapters, we hear a message of comfort and consolation. Those who first heard Isaiah's message in these chapters would have been encouraged to know that though they would be led out in exile to Babylon, that they would also return with joy to their homeland. Uh, that's how these chapters conclude. So if you turn back to the end of Isaiah chapter 40, I told you we keep going back and forth. Uh, if you take a look at verse 20, so 39, chapter 39, you're going to go out in exile. End of chapter 48, verse 20. Now here's a command to go out from the place where they're in exile. Go out from Babylon, flee from Chaldea, declare with a shout of joy, proclaim it, send it out to the end of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. See, there's hope. Here, a really terrible thing lays before the people of God, but they ought to be comforted to fear not, for they have peace with God, and the God of peace is with His people. What about us? You know, we're not living in uh, 8th century BC, so, so how ought we to think about this portion of God's Word? Well, at, at one level, the, the writers of the New Testament tell us that we live actually in a similar circumstance to those who lived in exile. So to, to Christians, the Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 to 19, Peter writes, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. He's writing to Christians, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from your futile ways with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So you see, we as New Testament believers, Christians, as citizens of heaven, believers live in a kind of exile on this earth. We're no longer barred from God's presence because of our sin. The first advent, first coming of Jesus and salvation has come in Jesus Christ. But we're, we're not in God's presence. We're all here together this morning. On earth. We're not in God's presence because the second advent, the second coming of Jesus Christ has not yet taken place. And still, we should be comforted because just as this exile that's spoken about here in Isaiah in the Old Testament came to an end, so our exile will come to an end too when Jesus Christ returns. We can be comforted in this season. So Christian, you can live through the, the disappointments, the discouragements in this life because you know that your warfare here on earth will come to an end. Your battle with sin will one day be over. You can persevere and live in faith knowing and showing the world that you are longing for a better country, a heavenly one whose architect and builder is God. And you need this comfort and peace from God to persevere. And others need it too. So be sure to invite them to receive the comfort of God through faith 
in Jesus Christ. Let's turn now and consider our second point, the, the harmony that we hear in these chapters. And here we're going to consider four distinct notes that ring out in these chapters. These four notes give the message of comfort and peace a, a kind of warmer, a fuller, a more vibrant sound. So let's start with the need of Israel. Uh, this uh, base note, if we can call it that, uh, is something that has been sounded all throughout the book of Isaiah. Um, from very early on, God's people, both those in the northern kingdom of Israel and those in the southern kingdom of Judah, have been described as those who are filled with sin. They are they're deaf and they're blind to God's purposes. Uh, even though the Lord sent Isaiah to proclaim the Lord's purposes to them. Uh, this makes for a kind of low and, and mournful sound. And this recurring theme reemerges particularly in a forceful manner there in chapter 42. So turn to Isaiah chapter 42. We're going to look at verses 18 to 25. That's page 603, I think, uh, of the Bibles provided. 603, Isaiah 42. And, and, and as I read this, listen particularly to how God's people are described. I, Isaiah 42, verses 18 to 25. Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my uh, dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness' sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plundered with none to rescue, spoil with none to say, restore. Who among you will give ear to this? will attend and listen for the time to come. Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned, in whose ways we would not walk, and whose law they would not obey? So he poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up. But he did not take it to heart. Once again here in the book of Isaiah. God's people are described as those who are, who are unable to hear and unable to see. Uh, they are God's servant. They're, they're those through whom God means to work. Um, and at the same time they are those who need to have their eyes opened to God's purpose. How he intends to work through them. Though in exile, though the exile, um, God magnified His justice in punishing their rebellion, it did not bring about the change that was needed in the people of God. They did not return to the Lord. They didn't say restore. Even the, the plundering and the looting of the exile didn't bring about sight or hearing or trust in God. The Lord's chastisement did not bring about the needed change of heart. The hearts of the people of Israel were stubborn. This is elaborated on further in chapter 48. Flip over to Isaiah chapter 48. We're going to go to the beginning of this chapter and read. We'll start reading in verse 1. I think we'll read through verse 8. Isaiah chapter uh, 41, verse, uh, 48, verse 1. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called... 
by the name Israel and who came from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord to confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. For they call themselves after the holy city and stay themselves on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is His name. The former things I declared of old, they went out from my mouth and I announced them and suddenly I did them and they came to pass. Because I know that you are obstinate and your neck is an iron sinew and your forehead brass, I declared them to you from of old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you. Lest you should say, my idol did them. My carved image and metal image commanded them. You have heard Now see all this, and will you not declare it? From this time forth I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. They are created now, not long ago, before today you have never heard them, lest you should should say, Behold, I knew them. You have never heard, you have never known. From of old your ear has not been opened. For I knew that you would surely deal treacherously. And that from before birth, you were called a rebel. Do you see the need? Uh, God's people were not only in exile for their rebellion, but in the exile, they remained in rebellion in their hearts. They were obstinate. They were stiff-necked and hard-headed, as verse 4 communicates. They were the people who needed to be delivered and saved But how? How is it that these people, these rebels, will be those whom God calls to leave Babylon in joy and in praise, as the end of chapter 48 suggests? Who could perform such a profoundly difficult and transformative work? God could and would. This is one of the wonderful ways in which God's greatness is declared and made known in these chapters. And, and before we go on to, to think about God's greatness, shouldn't we pause and think about our own need? Have your eyes been opened to your need of redemption? Uh, do you see the sin in your life that has led you into captivity? Do you see how it has bound and shackled you? Are are, are there ever times when you feel horrendous for the things that you have done, for the words that you speak, or perhaps even merely just for the thoughts that you think? That, That was a dark thought. Has that ever been your experience? And then you do it all over again. You need to be redeemed and rescued from your captivity to sin, even if you don't see it yet. And who but God can redeem you? Who but God can transform you? The comfort that I think that we should take from these chapters is that God's grace is greater than all of our sin. And that's the second note of these chapters, the greatness of God. The greatness of God is is seen in part through His faithfulness to a faithless people. Right after the Lord excoriates His people for being deaf and blind at the end of chapter 42, he, He reassures His people that He will not forsake them. Rather, He will redeem them. So turn to Isaiah chapter 43. Let me read 
uh, just the first five verses of Isaiah chapter 43. And listen, listen to how God thinks of His people. Isaiah 43. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Sabia in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west, and I will gather you. What we need to see here from Isaiah 43 is how closely God identifies with His people. He calls them by His name, verse 1. He walks with them through the waters and even through the fires. You see that in verse 2. Why? Well, we're told right there in verse 3. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, the people of God are precious in His sight. You see that in verse 4. They are honored. And then come those three amazing words. I love you. And I'm not sure those three words are strung together just like that anywhere else in Scripture. And this is but part of what makes our God great. He relentlessly loves His people. Isn't that the kind of love that this world needs? A, a forgiving and faithful love. A love that is not deterred by sin. Isn't this the kind of love that we ourselves as sinners need? Friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, let's just take this in. God loves His people. He, he says directly to them, I love you. And if you are a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is what God says to you. The one whom He has set His name upon, Christian, He has set His name upon you. He says, I love you. He says, I know all of your sins and weaknesses, and I love you. Is that not a word of comfort to us? Children, uh, youth, young adults, uh, I don't want you to miss this either. Um, you know as a church we talk a lot about sin and about God's good and just and right anger at sin. And I don't want you to miss God's love. And it's because of His love that He's actually angry at sin. And it's out of His love that He sends His Son to deal with our sin. Don't ever miss the love of God. I hope that when your parents, your Sunday school teacher, when I or when another preacher stands up here and speaks to you, that when we speak about sin, we also speak about what our God has done to remedy sin. 
another thing that gives Isaiah so much delight in the greatness of God uh, here is, is uh, in contrasting the folly, the folly of idolatry with the greatness of God. Isaiah he actually gives a, a good bit of space uh, in, uh, to this subject, the folly of idolatry and the greatness of God in these chapters. He says something about it almost in every chapter, but let's begin where he begins, back in chapter 40. Um, uh, back in chapter 40, you take a look at verse 18. Just after Isaiah declares the sovereignty of the Lord over the nations of the earth, that's another way in which God is great. He's sovereign over everything. He's sovereign over history. He has control of it. Just after Isaiah declares this, that God's sovereign over His creation, the nations of the earth, he points out that there's no one like our God. Uh, so start there in verse, uh, verse 18. Uh, to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with Him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for its silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, spreads them out like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these things, who brings out their host by number and calls them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. See, no one compares to our God. And Isaiah is incredulous that anyone would even think that an idol who cannot move would even dare compare it to the God who has moved heaven and earth in His creative power. Our God in heaven is the one who calls the heavenly bodies out. He calls the hosts. He calls them out by name. He calls out the, the sun and the moon and the stars and not one of them is missing. And Isaiah says that idols, when you really think about it, they're pretty silly. He says it in chapter 41. He says it uh, again in chapter 44, one more time, he gives a really long section. If you flip over to Isaiah chapter 44, you'll see there verses 9 uh, to 20. And here, let me just kind of summarize what's there. Isaiah, he, he depicts this idol maker who's busy at his work. And this idol maker is busy at his work and suddenly he gets hungry. And one half of the log he uses to make the idol and the other half he uses to cook his dinner. And then Isaiah steps back and says... And you're telling me that this block of wood that you worship is holy. It's actually good for nothing. Unless you're hungry and need to make dinner. That's what Isaiah is effectively saying here. The, the point is, once again, the contrast to contrast the imbecilic nature of idolatry and the greatness of God. But, but what does all of this have to do with comfort and with Isaiah's overarching message of salvation? Everything, really. Because God is real and living, and active, and in control of history, he can do those things 
which he purposes to do, unlike the idols. See, God, he is, he's actually going to, in his greatness, send his people into exile. And he's going to rescue and bring them out of it, too. That's how great our God is. He can control the events of history and will to make his name great. He's going to work for the good of his people. Friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, God's love for us, his eagerness to forgive us, and his power to bring good to his people ought to encourage us to leave our sins and our idols behind. It is folly to pursue idols when God has given us himself. The pleasures of this world are unforgiving. But the God who made this world is not. You can chase after all that this world has to offer. And all that it holds dear. You can chase after power and money and fame. But it will not comfort you when it leaves you broken. You may have the praise of the world and the palace of a king. But it will not endure Uh, Many years ago, a Christian uh, in his journal, by the name of John Wesley, he wrote about the time that he had a chance to observe the king, king of England, in person. And this is what he wrote in his journal uh, in the month of December, many years ago. He wrote, I was in the robe chamber adjoining the house of lords when the king put on his, his robes and his brow was much furrowed with age and quite clouded with care. And is this... All the world can give even to a king? All the grandeur it can afford? A blanket of ermine around his shoulders, so heavy and so cumbersome that he can scarcely move under it. A huge heap of borrowed hair with a few plates of gold and glittering stones upon his head. Alas, what a bauble is human greatness. And even this will not endure. Our earthly idols can give us empty praise and empty love for but a few years. The greatness of God is that he can give the comfort he commands and a love that never ends. God has purposed to redeem his people and he makes his greatness known through redeeming and saving his people. What Israel needs is to be redeemed. What the greatness of God teaches us is that only God can do it. And the question we now face is, how will he do it? Uh, These chapters gradually introduce to us a third note, how redemption will come. And it must be said that the chapters which follow further plumb the depths of this redemption. Turn Turn to chapter 42. As we think about this redemption, uh, we need to recall that prophecy... Again, it often works on multiple levels. Uh, There are often multiple horizons of fulfillment. At one level, there are kind of near-term fulfillments to these prophecies located in Isaiah. And and at another level, there are some kind of distant future fulfillments to these prophecies. Israel's most immediate need in the historical context here in the book of Isaiah is the need to be redeemed and rescued from this Babylonian exile. And in chapter 42, we're introduced to a figure called the servant of the Lord. And let's take a look at this servant in Isaiah chapter 42. Uh, Let's begin reading there in verse 1. Listen to me in silence, O coastland. Oops, sorry, I started in chapter 41. Let's get to 42. There we are. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. 
I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare before they spring forth. I tell you of them. By the plan and power of God, this servant meets the needs of God's people. He will bring about the sight that the people of God have needed. And he will free them from their captivity in Babylon. He will establish justice and the appreciation of God's law that God's people so dearly lacked. And as these chapters progress, specifically when we get to chapter 45... We're told that this servant of the Lord is none other than Cyrus, the Persian king. So turn over to Isaiah chapter 45. Let's read Isaiah chapter 45, uh, beginning there in verse 1. I think just the first six verses. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you. And level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes and the secret places. That you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord. There is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. In, uh, in, in 586, 587 B.C., the people of Judah were carried off to exile by Babylon. But eventually, Persia conquered Babylon. It happened around uh, 539 B.C. Babylon's call, uh, fall, uh, as you may recall, was actually recounted, predicted in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapters 13 and 14. God told his people that he would redeem them from the trouble of the exile. And Isaiah reminds his readers of this in chapters uh, 46 and 47. So turn over to chapter 46 and and notice how it opens. It opens with the fall of of, of Babylon. Isaiah 46, just verses 1 and 2. Bel bows down. Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are borne as burdens on weary beasts. They Stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Isaiah, what he's doing here is he's calling out the empty Babylonian deities of Bel and Nebo in order to taunt Babylon in its downfall and exalt God 
in His redeeming and saving purposes. The, the shame of Babylon, you'll notice, it continues on there into chapter 47, where Isaiah suggests that the mighty Babylon has been disgraced through manual labor and public nakedness. When God, what God declared He would do, He did. And sometime around 538, 537 B.C., the Persian king Cyrus issued an edict that allowed the people of Judah and Israel to return to the promised land of Canaan and resettle. And in a stunning reversal of their fortunes, they, they took riches with them back to the promised land of Canaan. All of this Cyrus did for them. He conquered their foes, released them from captivity, and gave them riches. Now just pause and think about this for a minute. Isaiah is a prophet in 8th century B.C., in the 700s. And the Lord is giving him, has given him, this divinely inspired vision of the future. Is this not incredible that he sees this unfolding in history before it unfolds in history and then it unfolds in history? Does not the word of the Lord stand firm? Every bit of this came to pass and so much more did as well. The writers of the New Testament help us to see that the redemption of the people of Israel from Babylon, from exile in Babylon, was but a type, was but a shadow of what was to come in the fullness of Jesus Christ. The physical exile of Israel and the redemption associated with it pointed to the reality of humanity having been exiled from God's presence due to sin. Way back at the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, he, he created the first man and the first woman to live there in a garden with him, to obey him, to love him, to serve him, and to follow him. And they rebelled against him. And what happened? An exile took place. They were cast out of God's presence. They couldn't be in his presence because of their sin. And this is being replicated, shown to us in Israel's exile. But we're also told in the Bible that the spiritual exile that has taken place because of our sin is going to be overcome. The redemption that was to come in Jesus Christ is given to us here in seed form. It, 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 it flowered in full in the New Testament. I want to I show you that. So in Isaiah chapter 40, uh, back to the beginning of, of our section this morning, Isaiah chapter 40, verses 9 to 11, we're told that God would come. Uh, that He would gather His people and shepherd His people. And then you know what happens in the New Testament? God comes in Jesus Christ. And in Jesus, uh, in Jesus' teaching, He says in John chapter 10, verse 11, we hear Jesus say, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down His life for His sheep. And then just a few verses later, Jesus would say this about gathering His sheep. He'd say, and I have sheep that are not of this fold. And I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. That's John 10, 16. Jesus is the shepherd promised of Isaiah chapter 40, verses 9 through 11. Jesus is also the, the tender servant of Isaiah chapter 42. Remember the, the bruised reed he will not break, uh, smoking flax he will not snuff out. Did you know that Matthew's gospel makes plain uh, this is a reference to Jesus. You can find that in Matthew chapter 12, verses 20 and 21. There we learn that Jesus is the Son in whom the Father is well pleased. He is the Father's servant upon whom the Spirit rests. 
He is the one who will not break a bruised reed, but offer rest to those who are weary and heavy laden. And in Isaiah 45, Cyrus, he's called the anointed one. That title, anointed one, has strong messianic undertones. And throughout the Old Testament, there's this promise that a Messiah figure is going to come. That's what Messiah means, anointed one. And Cyrus is called the anointed one. As we read about uh, Cyrus in Isaiah 45, he's the one who the Lord has anointed to accomplish Israel's redemption from Babylon. But see, the, the promise of a Messiah was that he would come from the house of David. Cyrus is not from the house of David. So we must expect another Messiah. We know that he's not the final Messiah, the final anointed one that we've been waiting for. There must be another Messiah to come. And there was and is. And his name is Jesus. And Jesus entered into a dark world held in captivity by bondage to sin. The eternal Son of God came as God in the flesh. And through his perfect life, he lived a sinless life. Unlike you and I and everyone else who lived here on this earth. He lived in perfect obedience to God the Father. And in love, he gave up his life on the cross. He died bearing the punishment due to the sins of all of those who ever confess, I'm in captivity and I need to be set free. He died bearing the punishment for our sins. And he was raised from the grave on the third day, proving to us that he has the power to open prison doors and to set captives free. He has the power to give us the riches of his righteousness, what we need to stand before God and be welcomed into his presence. He has the power to end our exile. And so he calls us to put our faith in him. And this is the question we face. This is the redemption that's ultimately promised in these chapters. And the only question is, is will we respond to the redemption that God in Christ has secured? Will we receive Jesus as our Messiah, our Savior, and our Lord? Which brings us to this final note, briefly, the response required. All throughout these chapters, we find imperative commands. You're supposed to do this. Uh, if we had um, time to walk through five or more of these commands, uh, we would. But let's just give ear to one. And these commands are calls to, to hear, to, to listen. Uh, if you turn to Isaiah chapter 46, this is the one I want us to, to look at. I want us to hear the Lord's command. I want us to hear the Lord's command to hear in verses 3 and 4 of Isaiah chapter 46. After God has told his people that the false gods of Babylon cannot save, the Lord tells his people that he can. Isaiah 46, verses 3 and 4. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and I will save. See, friends, when, when God says, listen in the Old Testament, He is telling His people and He's telling us to hear and believe what He is saying. 
So if you're here this morning, you're not a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then friend, I I pray that you would hear this word from God and be comforted. He made you in His image. You and I and everyone else here who has walked this earth, we've sinned and rebelled against Him. And in love, He sent His one and only most beloved Son to live the life that we have not lived, to die the death that our sins deserve, to be raised from the grave so that we might be freed from our captivity to sin and accepted as righteous in God's sight. So friend, I plead with you and I urge you to turn from your sin and to believe in Christ and hear this word of comfort and receive the eternal comfort of salvation from our God. Brothers and sisters, Christian, as we conclude, I especially want to encourage you to rest in the comfort that we have from God's word. As we saw in these chapters, God promised that he would come and he did. God came in the flesh. He came in Jesus Christ. Let us listen to God's word when he tells us that he's coming again. Let us listen and believe. He has come and he is coming again. This is what we must remember. He promised us as we even celebrate the Lord's Supper. In this meal, we proclaim his death. What? Until he comes again. So as we wait for this second advent, let us remember what Augustine said in one of his sermons. He said, Christmas is fast approaching. And now that Christ has aroused all of our seasonal expectations, he will soon fulfill them all. And so we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we, th- we give you thanks for this word of comfort. Oh, Lord, while we wait for you to fulfill your purposes, Lord, help us to see our need. Help us to confess our sin. And help us to be persuaded and certain of your love for us in Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, help us to hear and believe that salvation is found in no one else but our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen.